we'll turn to our scripture lesson, which is uh, one of the scriptures we'll talk about this evening briefly. As we'll jump around a bit through the Bible, turn to Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17 this evening. This is the word of the Lord, as we have had the privilege of singing his word in the Psalms. We also have the privilege of hearing it read now. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word, as he gave to the Apostle Matthew, as we read in John, that he promised, Jesus promised that the Apostles would uh, receive the Holy Spirit, and they would remember all that Jesus taught and did and teach much besides, or be, receive much teaching besides that from the Holy Spirit, which is, of course, what we have recorded in the New Testament. Here, the Apostle Matthew uh, writes here of the baptism of Jesus Christ, as we read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Again, this is the very word of the living God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this ends the reading of God's word for us at this time. And may he bless its reading and its proclamation and its hearing this evening. Well, last week we began this series of sermons on what Presbyterians believe, uh, in which I'm uh, intending to cover just the basic teachings, the topic headings of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'll read you portions of the confession or sometimes the whole chapter that we're uh, going to be studying, as I'll do tonight. Uh, And this Westminster Confession, of course, is what's held by all Presbyterian denominations uh, to be a faithful exposition of the basic teachings of Scripture. And this evening, then, we come to the topic of the nature of God, which is covered in the second chapter of the Confession. So let me read to you a part of what the Confession says as we begin here about God's nature. And I'll just very briefly explain some of this. Someday, as I said, we might in Sabbath school go through the larger catechism or something, and that will we'll get into all the details of these things, Lord willing, at such a time. But the confession says there is but one living and true God. And in God's providence, as we're going through First Corinthians, uh, we'll be coming up soon to the topic of there being uh, one God uh, and to... Uh, We'll be studying that in a little more detail. But the confession rightly says, There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, 
most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Of course, uh, the scripture teaches that that is the case, and uh, that doesn't negate the notion that you can be saved from the guilt of your sin, as the confession will go on and deal with Christ being our mediator and our substitute in terms of our guilt being punished. But the confession goes on here and says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereignly, and has mo- hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and de- independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Now we won't take the time this evening to go into the details. In fact, I could get a sermon out of just about every clause of that confession there, those two paragraphs from the confession. So we don't, of course, have time enough to go into all of the details of everything that is said about God and into all of the proof texts that are offered. And uh, most of those statements are almost direct quotes from Scripture or a clear paraphrase of what the Scripture says. The members of the Westminster Assembly thoroughly researched the Scriptures, though, uh, on every topic, and they were careful not to have... uh, not to leave anything out, maybe I should say. Uh, each of those statements about God has at least one scripture reference. The uh, copy that I was, the Westminster Confession that I had photocopied there that I was reading from has, has a, a number reference after every few words. <laughs> They're just showing, there's a scripture in the footnotes. But this faithful summary of the Bible's teaching on the nature of God tells us certain basic things about him that we can separate really into two categories. God's incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. Uh, So what do we mean by that? God's incommunicable attributes are those things that pertain to the nature of God himself and not to anyone or anything else. They're unique to him. Uh, They do not have any resemblance in us or in any other created being, any other creature. God is totally independent and self-existent. He needs no one and nothing to sustain him. uh, Think of uh, when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. There There was this 
fire and the angel of the Lord, which is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, So Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, they were speaking to Moses out of the flame in the burning bush. And the bush burned but was not consumed. So God doesn't need fuel. (laughs) And we saw that in the many statements there in the confession. He's not contingent upon anything. Uh, he's self-sufficient, right? He doesn't need something to sustain him. He simply is. And he is the ground of all other being, or the fountain, as the confession said, of everything else that exists. From him comes all existence of anything else. Everything else, the existence of anything but God, is contingent upon God's existence. Depends on him. He's totally independent and self-existent. God is immutable. He's unchangeable, that is. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, He is the unchangeable God. He's infinite. He's not subject to time. He's eternal. Or to the limits of space. He's omnipresent. Or as the confession there said, he's incomprehensible. That doesn't just mean he's not fully understandable, which is true. Because our minds are not infinite, and so we can't fully understand God. We'd have to have an infinite mind to understand God, because he's infinite, fully. But we can understand what he reveals to us about himself, and he's capable, because of his infinite wisdom, uh, to, of, of, of speaking to us in a way that he knows we'll, we will understand and will be accurate. But he is incomprehensible in the sense, not just that he can't be understood, but that he can't be surrounded, if you will. That's really what that word means. There's nothing bigger than God. He has simplicity of being. That's not to say that he's simplistic, but when theologians talk about God having simplicity of being, we're saying that he is one, and his whole being is God, belongs to each of the three persons of the Godhead, which we'll get into more shortly. Though I won't give as much detail on the doctrine of the Trinity tonight as I have at other times as well. But he is one being. So those are some of his incommunicable attributes. Those are things unique to him. God's communicable attributes are those things that pertain to his nature that can be reflected in our nature, or in the nature of other creatures that he has made, particularly, though, that are reflected in those creatures which he has made in his own image, mankind. Knowledge, right? God knows things. He's, in fact, omniscient. He knows all things. He has unlimited knowledge. Now, we are limited in knowledge, but we can have knowledge, and so can angels, right? So there are, are heavenly beings that God has created that can know things. And so uh, those are communicable attributes. He's given the attribute of knowledge to some of his creatures. We can know things. We can't know all things. So he infinitely has knowledge, and we finitely have knowledge, but we reflect that characteristic of God. Knowledge. There's some other communicable attributes. Wisdom. So wisdom is... If knowledge is having information, then wisdom is the application of that information in a right way. So the right application of of the knowledge that we have. Of course, God perfectly applies the knowledge that he has, and we can imperfectly apply that knowledge. We can finitely do what God can infinitely do. Of course, 
our knowledge and our wisdom are also flawed by sin. But even before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve had knowledge, but they didn't have all knowledge because they weren't infinite in their knowledge. And they didn't. They could have wisdom, but they uh, couldn't uh, have infinite wisdom because they weren't infinite. Goodness. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were good. And you and I can be good by God's grace to a certain extent. But even if our goodness were not, again, marred by our sinfulness, uh, we would be good finitely. God is good infinitely. But certainly this is a communicable attribute of the Lord. Love. Love is another communicable attribute of God. God loves. God is love. The persons of the Trinity loved each other from all eternity. And then when God has made other creatures, he can love them. And then when he makes those creatures in his image, they're capable of loving also, as God loves. Not infinitely, but finitely. Holiness can be set apart from creation, from the fallen world. Uh, Even, again, when God made Adam and Eve, he declared them good, declared all things good, uh, and he set them, set Adam particularly, uh, over the creatures, gave them dominion. So there's a separateness there, there's a holiness there. Also, they were righteous, and you and I, by God's grace, can become more righteous. God has perfect righteousness. Truth, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. God has truth as an attribute also of his very being. And you and I can have and know truth. Again, finitely as God does infinitely. Sovereignty. God is perfectly sovereign over all things. You and I can exercise sovereignty over the things that God has placed under us. Again, the creation mandate. We have dominion over the earth and the creatures in it. Power. We can have power and authority. We're capable of doing things. God is capable of doing anything. All these things are attributes God has infinitely, but uh, we share, or can share, in a finite way in those attributes. So there's God's, some of God's incommunicable attributes and some of his communicable attributes. So if you think of it as, if I have a, this isn't maybe the, the nicest comparison, but think of what the difference between an incommunicable disease and a communicable disease, right? If it's communicable and I have it, I could give it to you. But if it's incommunicable, I could have it and you wouldn't have anything to worry about in terms of catching it from me. We're never going to catch God's incommunicable attributes from him, but he gives us his communicable attributes. Also, we see, as the confession rightly says, that God is spirit. There, is a, a, there are poetic references in the Old Testament to God's hands and eyes and even his nose. One of the most uh, common expressions for anger in Hebrew is that his nose burnt. So it either means something about the face getting red you know, when you're angry or your nostrils flaring, perhaps. Uh, but in any case, it's an expression, it's a, a anthropomorphic, that is a human-like expression uh, of anger. We are God saved Israel from 
Egypt by a mighty arm. Right? But it's not, those are poetic references. They're not literally meaning that God had a giant arm that swept down from heaven and scooped the Israelites up and saved them from, uh, from Egypt. God appears even at times in visions in human form and sometimes takes on a more corporeal type form, the second person of the Trinity. Again, the, the, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ appears as a man at times in the Old Testament. But of his divine nature, of his nature as God, he is purely spirit and doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a body or parts or passions, as the confession rightly says. We'll see in the future how God, the Son, took on human nature in a physical body, but that's, uh, that's a second nature. But in his divine nature, he is a spirit, and he's invisible, he can't be seen. I was delighted many years ago when I was visiting a friend and his three-year-old boy, who's probably now about 13, uh, could recite to me, that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I used to have that memorized too, and I, I looked at the page just to make sure I got all the, the words in the right order just now. It was a delight to hear a little three-year-old boy say that. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, perhaps the most important thing we need to understand about God's nature, a basic distinctive of the Christian faith, because so far most of the things that we've said about God here could be said by any Jew or Muslim as well, but something that we know of the true God that is rejected by so many is his revelation of himself as Trinity, as three persons in one God, or one God in three persons. God is three in one. The confession puts it like this. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Uh, sometimes we'll see in the, the Greek, it's uh, more, uh, might translate it more as one essence. There's one essence or one substance of God. So don't think that that means substance as in something you can touch. But it's talking about the essence of who God is. His es- essential being as God. It's one sub- so you're three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. So they've all three always been God. It's not as if one of them existed and then the others came into being. They were always all three there as God. And they are the same God, but they're distinct from one another in personhood. And some of the distinction is said here in the confession is the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So the uh, key word there is eternally. So it's not like he came to be begotten at some point. He was eternally in relationship, in a father-son relationship with the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, um, it's, a, it's true that if you refuse to accept that, you're not a Christian. But I won't say that you aren't a Christian if you don't understand it. Because that is a hard thing to understand. We just simply have to accept that the Bible is quite clear that there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Holy Spirit. And each one of these is the very same God. But that 
The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. He's not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The, the, these three persons are not each other. There is a distinction between them. And the Bible leaves us with no room to think any other way. The, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't something that, that somebody just invented as maybe a convenient way to think about God. They were compelled, the early church was compelled to uh, to say that this is what the Bible teaches because it's the only thing that the Bible leaves us room to believe about God and the persons of the Godhead. Other things that are taught, other versions of this doctrine that are taught are contradictory to Scripture. So this concept is really ultimately too big for the human mind to understand fully. We can't wrap our minds fully around it. We just have to accept this is what the Bible tells us. We have to accept it as the plain teaching of Scripture and therefore God's revelation to us of who He is. And we have to reject any teaching that contradicts or confuses this doctrine. This evening's Scripture lesson that I've read already from Matthew 3 uh, shows us this doctrine in part. As we noted that there was a the Son of God was there, and the Father declared Him to be His beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descended on Him, and we hear the voice of the Father. In Deuteronomy 6, we see the Lord is one. A very simple verse in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So He is one God, and yet He is three in person. This Lord is is one who reveals himself also as three persons, the very same three persons of whom we read in Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus. The Son was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him, the Father spoke. The Father wasn't baptized, the Holy Spirit didn't speak, right? The Son didn't come down from heaven at that point. These are different persons doing different things, distinct from one another, and yet one and the same God. In Genesis 1, God refers to himself as us, particularly when he's making mankind. Let us make man, let us make man in our own image. And there are some who make the argument that uh, he's actually talking to his heavenly court, those heavenly beings that he created. You know, those other beings that can think like we can think and worship the Lord. But he involves them in his creation. And there may be certain things in the Old Testament, some would argue, say the Tower of Babel, where the Lord says, let us go down and see what's going on. He might be speaking to his heavenly court at that point. But I don't think that works very well in Genesis 1, because the scripture says, let us make man in our own image. And then the next verse says, he made them in his singular own image. In Psalm 2, though, we read of, God the Father and God the Son. In terms of verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 2, we read, Yet I have set, this is the Lord speaking, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. There's the king speaking. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this is the son who the scripture goes on to say that you have to kiss him lest he be angry, and blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is speaking of Christ. Think of Psalm 110 and verse 1. There are two lords. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
So there are two lords there that David is speaking about. And Jesus asks this, read in Matthew and Mark, uh, he asks this, uh, how is it? Luke as well, we read that uh, Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, how is it that David's son is his Lord? If we know that the Messiah is David's son, how can he be his Lord? And he's not saying, I'm telling you that Psalm 110 is wrong. No, he's, he's telling them to think about this. How can it be that David has a descendant who is also his Lord when we know that the ancestor is always superior to the descendant? Well, only if the descendant is God himself. So there we see the second person of the Trinity incarnate coming into the world as a man. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Comforter, the Counselor, this Holy Spirit is likewise spoken of as a person throughout Scripture who is to be worshipped as God. In Acts 5, verses 1 through 4, we read this, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the problem there, as Peter's going to say, isn't that he kept some of it for himself, it's that he claimed that he's given all of it. Right? So he's, he's lied here. And so the scripture says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So you notice in verse 3, he lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he lied to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit is God himself. There we see the Holy Spirit is God. When Jesus tells the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, the word name is singular. There's one name, one God, but then there are three persons. It's not three names. It's one name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We think of John chapter 1. We're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's both God and he's with God at the same time. And then we read thereafter that everything that was made was made by him. There was nothing that was made that wasn't made by him, which means he can't have been made. So he is also the eternal God. So there are just uh, scripture upon scripture upon scripture that leaves us with no room but to know that God is Trinity, that God exists in three persons. There were hints of this in the Old Testament, and it becomes clear in the New the Old Testament scholarship, even before the time of Christ, there were rabbis who were noting that there were, at the very least, what they called two powers in heaven. There was Yahweh who sends and the Yahweh who was sent. There was the Lord and the angel of the Lord, and they were both the same Yahweh, and yet they were distinct from one another in personhood. And even some of those rabbis pointed out, and it looks like there's also a spirit of God who is sent forth and is one and the same God, and yet is also sent by God. So how can that be, except that there would be multiple persons in the Godhead? The idea of the Trinity is there in the Old Testament. It's just more clearly revealed in the New. These may seem like abstract concepts, but they're extremely important. Not only do they distinguish Christians from the followers of false religions and false Christianities, 
They affect how we relate to God in our worship and in our daily life. We find in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is the one who carries our prayers to the throne of the Father with, with groanings too deep for words. So we, we know that we pray in the name of Christ normally to the Father, though it's appropriate to pray to any person of the Godhead. Ordinarily, what do we do? We pray to the Father in the name of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is our mediator in that prayer. So these might seem like abstract things, but they actually have a great deal of effect on how we relate to God. Your God is not a man who became a God like the God of the Mormons. He is eternal and He is spirit. Your God is not weak, nor is He kind of powerful like the gods of the nations. Zeus, who is powerful, but not all-powerful. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's omnipotent. Nothing is impossible for him unless it is against his character or logically impossible. You know, God can't make a rock so big that he can't lift it. Why? Because God can lift anything. Your God is not an impersonal force as many occultists seem to think, or he's not pure mind or mere power. He's not simply an organizational principle behind the universe, like many New Agers would say. He's not the force of Star Wars, where there's light and dark in him. There is no darkness in our God. He is righteous, he is good. He's not simply the soul or the mind of the universe. He's not to be identified with the universe itself in any way. He's the self-existent creator of the universe. He's something other than the universe, other than the things he's made. He is personal, which means you can relate to him. In fact, he exists in three persons who love and interact with each other in perfect accord of will. And so you can have a relationship with him. In fact, this personal God has made you in his image with some of the same attributes that he has, though in a finite sense. And so you can understand him to that extent. You can relate to him. And not only can you relate to him, you can know him. And he wants you to know him. So get to know God for who he really is. Let's pray. Almighty and triune God, we, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us and that indeed we may know you, that cause us to grow in our knowledge of you and through that knowledge that we might grow in love for you. That through our union with Christ, we might have deeper communion with all of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For we do pray in the name of your only begotten, eternally begotten, and the one who has come into our midst. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.